Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. this morning is from Proverbs 20, verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. This proverb is nothing more than a simple statement of fact. Yet there is some profound wisdom to be gleaned in the truth it states. This is not a grandiose fact or something that on the surface seems to be shocking. God made the ear and the eye and he gives the ability to use them. It's simple. However, this truth is a powerful tool in the arsenal of the wise man. Because first, it will keep him humble. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we recognize that all we know, all we hear and see, is a gracious gift of revelation from God, because we wouldn't have the means of knowing as we know without him, then we must subordinate ourselves to Him. All too often, it is easy to take these blessings for granted. Sight and sound seem commonplace and normal, and even a right. But for those who don't have good hearing or good eyesight, the experience of the world is something very different, entirely different. And they have much greater obstacles to success in their endeavors. So humility is the first byproduct of this valuable recognition, this valuable truth. The second aspect is related. Fools deny this truth. They say there is no God, and they puff themselves up in pride. They are blind to the plain facts of existence, and they are deaf to the proclamations of Scripture. So they fulfill Scripture, saying they do, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. God gives eyes and ears, but we also need Him to see and understand truth. Just because eyes see and ears hear doesn't mean that our heart or our mind gets it or that they comprehend, no matter how much the fool bloviates. So a wise man will understand these things and will be able to perceive wisdom in his interaction with fools knowing when to answer the fool according to his folly, and also knowing when not to. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. If you're willing and able, please kneel. ascension. The disciples' confidence was restored in Jesus, the scriptures, and in each other. And we've seen God's fulfillment of his promise, the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Last Sunday, we discovered the circumstances surrounding Peter's first sermon. The mocking that caused him to stand up and boldly proclaim the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. Contrary to the accusation of drunkenness, 
The wonder that was seen was the finger of God displaying a powerful vindication of the followers of Jesus Christ by giving them power. Peter himself, only 53 days prior, had denied Jesus Christ three times. And he denied that he even knew him. And now, here he was, standing in front of the multitude, ready to speak boldly and take advantage of a great preaching opportunity. The power of the Spirit truly was upon him and the eleven. The title of the message today is The Message of Pentecost. At Pentecost, God does a couple of miracles. The first is that he sends his spirit and writes the law on his people's hearts, fulfilling the scriptures like we talked about last week. Second, the spirit overflows and the disciples cannot help but speak the truth that God has placed within them. God sends himself within them and they can't contain God, so he comes out in their words. The miracle here is the gift of tongues in which there was nothing lost in the translation. Men from every nation under the sun heard the truth of God in their native tongue and dialect. The third miracle is the boldness with which the apostles proclaimed their message. In a chapter or so, we're going to see how the leaders of the Israelites will marvel that these are uneducated men from a backwater region of Israel. And yet they speak with the boldness of great orators. And they convict as only the Holy Spirit can. The content of the message of Pentecost is pure and simple and straightforward gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And that gospel begins, continues, and ends with Jesus Christ. Peter's message at Pentecost is salvation. It's the gospel. It's the good news. And Peter's sermon is given to us in Acts 2, verses 22 to 36. After Peter has defended the Holy Spirit from defamation, these are not drunk since it is only the third hour of the day. After he defends the apostles, he makes a proclamation that he has a message. Verse 22, men in Israel, hear these words. This is an important aspect of spirit-filled Christianity. This goes back to the water of life, which Jesus promised to the Samaritan woman at the well. The Holy Spirit becomes a spring of living water in the hearts of believers. When God fills us, he has something to say to those around us. We will see this time and time again as we study through Acts. And when the Spirit of God descends upon his descends upon believers, they always speak. They prophesy, and they share the good news of his presence in their life. They can't do anything less than that. Moreover, the essence of his message, the essence of the message of the Holy Spirit is always Jesus Christ. 
Peter begins there, verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So Peter starts his message with Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. He continues on from there, for David says concerning him in verse 25. Then jumping forward to verses 31 to 33, David foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the Father from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And Peter ends with Jesus. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Holy Spirit always points men to God. Jesus is the way to the Father. Therefore the Holy Spirit always points men to Jesus. But his witness is not without power or conviction. The truth of the message of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, is attested to by God in both history and the scriptures. This is exactly what we should expect to see if God is both the God who created the world and the God who revealed Himself in the scriptures. Remember, Peter is talking to Jews. Men who hold both of these truths by virtue of their membership in the covenant people. They believed in the Creator God and they believed in the scriptures that revealed Him through Moses and the prophets. Let us look at Peter's sermon and its progression. He starts out by pointing to God's work in his experience, in Peter's experience, in history. The three or so years in which Peter walked with Jesus and his recent death and resurrection. I just read verses 22 to 24 where he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. This is recent history for Peter and the Jews in Jerusalem. He's saying God has proven who he was by what he did in him. And he's proven who he was by what happened to him. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed, but, having, uh, loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So there's a problem here, though. If Jesus is the Christ, how could he be crucified? Well, the scriptures foretell that he would be crucified. And, he, and that's where Peter goes next, to the scriptures. And he displays how they foretell of these events. Not only do they foretell, but they require them. It was not possible that Jesus could be left dead. For David says concerning him, verse 25, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand. 
that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Here Peter's quoting the psalm. And he's saying that you will not allow my flesh to see corruption or leave my soul in Hades. And, and so this is a prophecy about the Messiah because death cannot hold him because he is God. He is perfect. He cannot die and remain dead. So Jesus, I mean, Peter just told us that God raised him up because it wasn't possible that he should be held by it. And it wasn't possible because the scriptures foretold that he, he would not be left in Hades. And next, history proves that David was not the Messiah. He was not the fulfillment of the psalm. And that's where Peter goes. And, and he talks about David. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And the spirit in David also spoke. David was a prophet, so he wrote further scriptures describing the Messiah. Verses 30 and 31. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Going back to history, Peter's going and talking again of the fulfillment of this. This is recent history for the disciples, and it's the present miracle established and it established the truth of these scriptures this jesus god has raised up of which we are all witnesses therefore being exalted to the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear pentecost the holy spirit comes and the, prophet, and, and, the, and the apostles prophesy and speak of the wonders that God has done in their lives and in the world. And furthermore, the scriptures tell what is to happen next. David didn't ascend, but Jesus did just ten days ago. Verses 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then he goes back to recent history. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter's sermon is, is, a, is a connection of recent history events and the prophecies of Scripture. And the result is a damning indictment and a terrible conviction of guilt. If Jesus is who Peter says he is, and Peter's audience are guilty of, of by lawless hands, has crucified and put Jesus to death, if that is who they are, and God has resurrected this Jesus, and has exalted him, placing Jesus at his right hand until God makes his enemies his footstool, then the Israelites, the house of Israel, have a big problem. They have a, a huge problem. And that's exactly what we see, verse 37. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? We are guilty of the blood of the Christ, and God has placed him in power. And this is the gospel. The gospel comes forward and and, and it hits these Israelites square in the face. And the gospel is a proclamation of truth and they cannot deny it. They were there. They saw the miracles that Jesus had done. They heard the stories of the resurrection. Some of them had seen Jesus. And those who had seen Jesus were witnesses that that he was alive and well. And the apostles had watched him ascend into heaven. And God has given him power. And that power is not limited to Christ. But now they're witnesses of the power of the Spirit in Jesus' followers. So the gospel is a a proclamation of truth. It's not a postulation. It's not a supposition. It's an in-your-face, straightforward declaration of what has happened in the world. And what has happened is that God has shown up and shown up in the flesh, and he's done an amazing thing here. He sent Jesus, and he has given him authority, all authority in heaven and earth, and he reigns in heaven with power, and that means that men must come to grips with that fact. Jesus told us in the gospel that he came to bring a sword and send fire on the earth. John told us that his winnowing fan is in his hand and that he will separate the wheat from the chaff. The offense of the gospel is evident from the very outset of Pentecost. Men either have to capitulate to it giving themselves over to an all-powerful God and Lord, or they place themselves at enmity with God. But the first and honest response is this. What shall we do? What am I supposed to... Help me. What can I do? And the natural thing for us is to respond this way. In fear and trepidation. Because we think that we know what God is like. And we think that he is like us. And if we had been wronged the way that we have wronged him and wronged Jesus, we would be out for blood. But let's follow the text. And what we see is repentance and grace. Verses 38 and 39. Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children. And to all who are afar off. As many as the Lord our God will call. Repent and believe. The gospel is good news. It's good It's not a scary proclamation of of doom, of the end of the world, because God's finally had enough and and he's done with us. That's not the gospel. The gospel's good news, and it's good news because Jesus came to save the world and not to condemn it. 
broken Israelites who were expecting a huge burden. They're expecting a huge burden. They're expecting God to send fire down from heaven. Or they're at least expecting the kind of burdens that the Pharisees would put on them. They're given a simple command. Repent and be baptized. God isn't out for vengeance. He's offering the the free remission of sins. Remission means forgiveness. God's offering free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He's offering freedom from guilt. And he's offering freedom from the penalty for sins. And not only that, but he is offering the power of the Holy Spirit. The news is not only good, it's better. It's not limited. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The power of the gospel is sufficient to save everyone that God desires to save. There's no limit on it that way. It is not a limited thing. The only limiter is the repentance and belief of the audience. However, this glorious proclamation of free grace and deliverance from sin does not negate the former indictment or judgment. Jesus is reigning. Just because he's reigning with a benevolent and good and kind and forgiving hand doesn't mean that he forgives those who don't repent. It doesn't mean that those who don't repent and turn to him as their Lord don't have much to fear. And we see this in verse 40. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. When you are saved by the gospel to Jesus Christ... You are saved from a precarious, dangerous, and horrible place. The gap between the saved and the unsaved is a huge gap. No matter how close or similar the two may appear, are not all the disciples and their audience Jews? Are they not all neighbors in Jerusalem? Yet their generation was perverse, and God's judgment was coming on it. The Jewish temple was destroyed only 40 years after this, and the nation was sorely vexed in the years in between, with false claimants to be the Christ, with schisms, with factions, and wars, and earthquakes, and tumults. The church, on the other hand, those who were baptized and turned to Christ, were given the Holy Spirit, and thus the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The distinction between the saved and the unsaved remains today, and thus Peter's warning remains true today. Be saved from this perverse generation. Men who refuse to recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord are doomed to eternal damnation and temporary frustration. We just finished our series on Ecclesiastes where we studied the vanity of existence here. 
But the gospel enlightens this problem because only what's done for Christ will last. If you want permanent grace, if you want permanent salvation, if you want your hope to be realized, put your hope in Christ. So if the message of Pentecost is Jesus Christ and free grace or death and destruction, then what is the fruit of Pentecost? And by this I mean, did it take? Was it a big hit? Or does it just fizzle? Is there a flash in the pan? Acts 2 verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls were added to them in one day. Obviously, Peter's message is powerful. The power is fed by the Holy Spirit. The fields are ripe for the harvest. And God had called the apostles to put their hands to the work and not look back. And that, putting your hands to the work and not looking back, is exactly what the apostles were asking from the new converts. Verses 42 to 45. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This was not just a fad or a nod of the head. Oh, you're right. Or a tip of the hat. The gospel has grip. And it demands all of you. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And that means that men who profess Jesus must submit themselves to him in every area of their life. These new converts, these men and women invested all of themselves in this new life. They gave their minds to the doctrine, the teaching of the apostles. They gave their affection and time for the fellowship of the saints. They gave their possessions and goods for the needs of the body. And they gave their allegiance, recognizing the power of God and His work in their midst. Moreover, they continued on in this manner. And the fruit of this unity, this was unity and peace with God, joy, praise, and blessing, verses 46 and 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Notice that the people were filled with the Spirit. They were unified in baptism, in faith, and Jesus Christ. The newfound freedom they had was a deliverance from their former burden of sin. And it filled them with joy and praise. This new demeanor, this community of life, gave them favor with all the people. And yet it was Jesus who was the one doing the work in their midst. Was there growth? Absolutely. But was it because of them? No. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. 
It was the Lord who added to the church. Jesus was the one doing the work in their midst. It was the, they were doing it by the Spirit, and the Spirit was the one who was driving this whole ship. So what is the fruit for us to glean from all of this, from the message of Pentecost? First, Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the ignition, the initial fire that Jesus came to ignite, setting the world ablaze. At Pentecost, we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. He's never been taken back. God's never reneged on his promise. He's been here, he's working here, and he's been here working ever since that time. God's Spirit is alive and well and working in this world. So we celebrate the beginning of a great thing at Pentecost. And that fire is the same fire that we participate in. Pentecost is a beginning, but it is our beginning. It's for you and for me. The beginning of the church age. The first grains of yeast in the dough. The seed of the mustard tree. The foundation of Daniel's mountain that fills the whole earth. It's that little stone that knocks down the idol. Second, the message of Pentecost is and always will be the same. The power of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. Beginning, middle, and end. Attested to in history and in the scriptures. In our lives by the Spirit. If you want to serve Him, if you want to serve Jesus Christ and establish His kingdom, then you must be filled with His Spirit. And if you are filled with the Spirit, then His message will pour out of you. You will speak it in your life. Your words and your relationships will all point to Jesus, your Lord. Because the Spirit is a wellspring of life. And so will you be if you give yourself over to Him. Third, the Gospel divides wheat and tares, sheep and goats, saints and sinners. The Gospel, Jesus Christ, always offends sin. There's no room for pride or arrogance, or idols in God's house, in God's temple. And we are God's temple. And this will have two effects. First, it will keep you faithful to God's truth in your representation of it. You may not water down the gospel in order to make it more palatable to those who don't like it. You can't make Jesus your buddy. He's your Lord. He's your friend. He cares about you. He loves you. He died for you. But you can't minimize who he is. You can't make him less than God because he is God. If sinners are offended by Jesus Christ in your life, great. That's good news because it means you're doing your job. Pierce them to the heart with Christ. Make them give up their idolatry. 
and then go about offering the resurrection, the free grace that Jesus promises. So first, it'll keep you faithful in your representation of him. Second, it will create a unity in our community. If you take away sin and pride and arrogance and idols in the body of Christ, what you're left what you're left with is an incredible peace based on the absolute truth of our God and established in the fruit of the Spirit, love and the forgiveness that Jesus Christ models for us. If we will not back down from the truth of Jesus Christ, if we, if we will knock down our idols and fall down before Him in humility, that will have an effect on our community. It'll teach us to love one another. It'll teach us to forgive one another. Finally, the Word of God is seed, and it grows. Faithful witnessing will have the effect of spreading the gospel. When we learn to give ourselves wholly up to God and allow Him to fill us completely, we will become a people that are dynamic, energized, and attractive. There will be a kind of life in our midst that the world can't even imagine, and if it could, it would only be a dream. When we witness Christ and His work in such a way that our lives are fully conformed to His rule, then we will be called on to give a defense for the hope that is in us, as Peter puts it in his letter. And the gospel is compelling. Men will come and the gospel will go out, and God will give the increase. He is not stingy, and he has grand designs. Jesus came to save the world. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. We don't need to worry about the details. What we would do if 3,000 people showed up to worship with us next Sunday. That's not our problem. God will take care of that stuff. We just need to believe and obey. God grants the increase, just like He grants forgiveness, just like He grants His Spirit. The apostles were simply obedient to Jesus' command. They were witnesses, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. And that's all that we are called to do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. today laid out the gospel plain and simple. Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, and he offers free grace and salvation to any who will believe in his name. Of course, this means that we must first acknowledge our sin, confess it, and repent of it, but that is what we do every week when we come to worship on Sunday. Our order of worship exists because we believe this. God calls us together. We come with praise on our lips. God cleanses us in the confession of sin and pardon. 
Next, He consecrates us and purifies us in prayer and with His Word, in the Scripture reading and the preaching of the Word. And here in communion, God feeds us with true spiritual food. Communion is a peace offering and a fellowship meal, symbolizing the unity we have in Christ and in baptism and in the Holy Spirit. And it is the proper end of our covenant renewal with our God. God is feeding us that we might be strengthened to go out and do what it is that he commands, to witness Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, ascended into heaven, and reigning at the right hand of God the Father with power. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.